This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, new records show that a second city Wi-Fi project appears to have many of the same conflicts of interest that sank the larger Smart Cities project, which was recently abandoned. A bill that would send 17-year-olds accused of certain offenses to adult jail rather than a juvenile lockup is headed toward final passage in the Louisiana State Legislature in direct contravention of current policy and practice in New Orleans. Applications to enroll in NOLA public schools dropped by nearly 30% between the 2019 and 2022 school years, according to a report presented to the Orleans Public School Board on Thursday. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastles here. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. All right, Michael, coming up first, you've been looking into the Smart Cities contracting controversy for a while. This week, you reported on a new allegedly separate City of New Orleans contract that appears to connect to this. What is this new contract? Yeah, so, so you know, if you've been following our coverage, we've been fo- uh, reporting on this Smart Cities deal for a while now. Um, you know, just a quick recap is that, you know, there's currently a city council investigation uh, into that project. Um, and the local office of inspector general last week um, seized the computer of one of the city officials involved. Um, so, so that is ramping up. Meanwhile, um, you know, like you said, there is this second potential city contract that is very closely related to that larger smart cities project. Um, but unlike the larger smart cities project, this specific potential contract has not yet been shelved. It has not been canceled, unlike the larger project around it, um, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to look at it a little closer. It, it's, it's a project um, worth roughly $3 million um, to build out new Wi-Fi equipment at 10 Nord Recreation Centers. Um, and then it would cost $300,000 a year after that to maintain. Now, we'll, we'll get deeper into all of this, but, but you know, the more we looked at this project and the potential contractor here, the more we saw the same companies, the same connections, the same people um, that were at the center of the conflict of interest and in contracting fixing allegations that ultimately sank the larger smart cities project. And, you know, I think one of the main things we saw here, um, it it really revolves around this company called Cambium. Um, Cambium Networks, which produces um, Wi-Fi equipment. And this company in particular has connections to many of the companies that were involved in the larger smart cities deal. Um, That includes uh, having having done prior work with a company that was founded by two New Orleans city officials um, called Verge Internet. If you've been following the Smart Cities coverage by now, um, you might be familiar with that name, Verge Internet. It was founded by two city employees called Jonathan, named Jonathan Rhodes and Christopher Wolf. But uh, records show that this company can be a had previously worked with them. And now what's weird about this whole public bid process is that when the city put it out to bid, they didn't just ask for general Wi-Fi equipment from any company whatsoever. It specifically asked for a reseller of Cambium equipment. Hmm. And now the, the big question here is, why did the city decide that it needed specifically Cambium equipment? Now, 
we still don't have a clear answer to that. Um, the city originally told us that the reason why they chose Cambium is that there's an existing state contract. Um, but then when we went and looked up the state contract, it wasn't there. Uh, when we went back to the city and pointed that out, they corrected themselves um, and explained that there was a misunderstanding here about whether or not there was a state contract. But at the end of the day, um, there is no state contract. The city's original explanation doesn't really hold up. And the city never offered us another explanation for why they chose Cambium instead of broadly any Wi-Fi equipment whatsoever. Notably, My, a, a competitor, for example, would be Cisco, which we've all heard the name Cisco, right? Yeah, right. and Cis Cisco produces many of similar products. Um, to Cambium. And, and, and Cisco actually does have a statewide contract that any local government can 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 use without having to do a, a new competitive bidding process. So again, it when we found that that out that Cisco that Cisco, a company that makes similar products for the exact same sort of purpose, um, already had a contract that the city could have could have used, um, it seemed even stranger that the city was was, you know, uh, putting out an invitation to bid only for Cambium products. Now, just to just to sort of put that into broader context, sometimes when the city or another public entity will put out a bid, particularly for technology equipment, um, they will request a, a particular brand, you know, like say some department in the city, everyone's trained on, you know, a PC instead of a Mac or right. a Mac instead of a PC. Sure. They'll put, they'll put, they'll put out a bid for that. But in, in most cases, um, especially for a project like this, where, where there's no, there's no justification that has to do with, that we've heard that has to do with this company has the best technology, or this is what our employees are already trained on. Typically what they would do is just put out a bid, put out a bid for any type of Wi-Fi equipment, um, not a specific brand. So that, that was one thing that stuck out at, at us. Anyway, I'm sorry, continue, Mike. No, no, I, 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 absolutely. And, and so, yeah, you know, again, just, you know, to reiterate what Charles is saying here, again, you know, the only explanation the city has provided is that they decided on this company because of the convenience of the existing state contract, which would allow them to buy this equipment without having to go through a public bid process, which would be understandable. I mean, a public bid process does slow things down. It does take resources. So it makes sense you'd want to go for a state contract. But again, there is no state contract. Right. And even if there was, there are competitors to Cambium that also have state contracts. So still, again, even if Cambium did have a state contract, it would still be, you know, why did you look at Cisco and Cambium and land on Cambium? So none of this has been explained. And then on top of that, we, we found some, some, some kind of strange details about how the process of this public bid really rolled out. The Cambium public bid was put out in November 2021. Um, it got a single response from a, uh, a company called Frontera Consulting, uh, a, a Texas-based company that resells Cambium equipment. But what was weird is that we have emails showing that the city was negotiating with Cambium and Frontera as early as January 2021, months before this public bid was ever um, put out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Cambium, uh, in a statement to the, to, to the Lens, um, told us that they did some design work for the, for the city. Um, we have emails showing that in February they were negotiating a potential contract, um, which you know may indicate that the city was was seeking to you know sign this contract without a public bid initially. But again, it raises questions of you know why was the city negotiating with this this uh, uh, technology manufacturer 
and a prospective bidder for for uh, as a distributor of that manufacturer months before they ever put this to public bid. Um, so again, that's just another piece of this that just it, it, it doesn't we haven't gotten a full explanation from the city as to why they were doing that and and, and whether that's kind of justified under the, the state's public bid laws, the open bid laws that are there to make sure that there is no nepotism, that there is no government corruption, the public bid laws that are there to make sure that government money is spent, you know, ethically and, and you know, responsibly. So going back to this state contract business, when we were looking into that, this, Michael is asking, Michael is basically asking two questions um, about how this contract processing process happened. One was, why did it have to be Cambium? And two, and number two was, how was it that you were negotiating, you appear to be negotiating with Cambium, uh, what, 11 months or something before you actually put out a bid or accepted any bids? And when they explained the statewide contract part of it, they seem to have been, and you know, there's, there's a lot of these answers we were getting from the city were confusing and we did try to follow up and not always very successfully. But it seems to have happened that in telling us about the statewide contract, they were justifying the pre-bidding process negotiations. They were saying we didn't have to do a bidding process. But then ultimately, they did do a bidding process. And for some reason, it still remained Cambium only. And that part is what doesn't make sense to me. Right? So and, and To follow up on what Charles is saying, to be clear, yeah, th th these aren't details that we simply thrust on the administration and gave them 24 hours. I mean, we've been working with them for, you know, weeks now to try and solidify some of these answers um, and, and, you know, have been unable to. And again, even when the original answer about the state contract, when that turned out to be false, you know, we followed up and asked, is there another explanation you'd like to offer anything that you can tell us to, as to why this happened this way? And, and they never responded. So again, this isn't, you know, the city had plenty of chances to respond here. Um, you know, if there was a perfectly reasonable explanation, they easily could have given it to us and they chose not to. Um, so I think that's that's notable here. So the smart cities thing for people who don't remember, and I'm sorry if I'm you know rehashing stuff that everybody knows. Basically, the, the allegation was this this consortium of businesses, smart and connected NOLA, uh, won this contract for this huge project, 15 year project, as it was initially pitched millions and millions of dollars to do a smart cities project. And the Smart and Connected NOLA was, was, was uh, led by two companies in particular, Qualcomm, which is the big wireless company, and JLC Infrastructure, which is a Chicago-based investment firm co-founded by uh, a, a, a major Chicago investment banker and the NBA legend Magic Johnson. Now, um, the allegations concerned concerned some people, uh, including Jonathan Rhodes, who's the head, head of the uh, mayor's office of utilities, um, and Christopher Wolf, who is an IT employee. So basically, Rhodes was talking, and I, this gets a little complicated, Rhodes, in, in helping to fashion the bid for the Smart Cities contract, was also talking to this company, uh, this, you know, quote-unquote pro bono consultant called Ignite Cities, also based in Chicago. Ignite Cities had a pre-existing partnership with both Qualcomm and, and JLC. While United, Ignite Cities was helping, uh, advising the city on this bidding process for smart cities, they also had a partnership with two of the companies that would be part of the winning bidder, bidders consortium, which you know suggests that the winning bidders consortium may have had an inside track. Right. In fact, we even know that Ignite Cities received a copy 
of the bid solicitation weeks before it was made public. So right. that's the smart city side. Now, this is the Wi-Fi side. So this Cambium company had also had various partnerships with Qualcomm. Um, on top of that, well, on top of that and related to that, it had partnered with Qualcomm, JLC, and Verge Internet, which is the company started by Jonathan Rhodes and Christopher Wolf, the two City Hall employees, to make a bid on a smart cities project in Los Angeles last year. Hmm. Um, and, and that occurred between the time that we know the city was talking to Cambium uh, to negotiate a no-bid no CEA uh, contract and when it actually put out a Cambium bid. So, you know, there's a lot of overlapping, um, you know, there's a lot of overlapping problems, you know, apparent issues between these two pro projects. Right. So to add to what Charles is saying, you know, we have emails that show that both Rhodes and Wolf were working, you know, to develop both the larger smart cities project and this Cambium public bid. So, so we know that these two city officials who have created this side business with potential conflicts of interest were involved in creating this public bid that would specifically send business to Cambium, who they had worked with in the past. Again, you know, let, I, I want to stress here that we don't really know why the city chose Cambium, but the city has also not provided any viable explanation. So th that's kind of why we're trying to figure out, you know, what the answer here is. And so you have to think about the, the city employees that were involved in creating this public bid and the incentives they had through their side business. And, and you know, the thing I want to, you know, we didn't really highlight this too much in the, in the written piece, um, but, you know, something that me and Charles briefly spoke about, you know, last night um, is the fact that Verge Internet, that this, this company founded by Wolf and Rhodes, what, what they're trying to do, what the company aims to do is provide an internet service that is not based off of fiber, it's not based off cable. It's based off this, this kind of newer form of broadband internet. It, it's, it's like called mesh Wi-Fi, and it's built off of like 5G LTE cell, cellular infrastructure. That form of broadband internet is exactly the equipment that Cambium makes and that the city would be buying in this situation. So I only say that to point out that Verge Internet had big ambitions of, of, of you know, attracting millions in investment and, and having millions of Internet cu customers throughout the country. You know, very, very big eyed ambitions. And to do that, they would need technology, access to a distributor of, of the type of technology that Cambium would be providing for this project with the city of New Orleans. So, again, we don't know if that's why, you know, uh, uh, the city worked with Cambium. We don't know that, you know, Rhodes and Wolf necessarily pushed it hard. But we do know that what Cambium does and what Verge Internet does are very closely connected. We showed council members a lot of this evidence. You know, I, I mean, as you guys, as people can tell from the last, you know, 20 minutes of us talking, this stuff is pretty complicated. So some of the council members kind of reserved their judgment. But the kind of the consistent theme through all those responses was, listen, we've got an ongoing investigation. If there's a there there, we'll find it. So, you know, again, uh, you know, we should be expecting more details on it. Okay. Well, and I think, I think, yeah, I mean, you talked to, you talked to Councilman Joe Geruso and he, he kind of, he, he said something that I think several council members have said all, all, already, but, but continues to be relevant. It's just, you know, every, every time you peel back a layer on this thing, there's something else. This is, you know, this Frontera thing. The city is the city has been claiming that it's an entirely separate 
uh, project in the smart cities thing, which Michael, I'd like to, you to talk about in a minute. But you you take you take a look at it for two seconds, and and you see the same sort of issues again. You know, just another layer of this thing, and so. It'll be it'll be interesting to see where this goes from here. Yeah. When you started asking questions about this particular contract, the city the city kind of very interesting to interestingly to me um, really insisted that this had absolutely nothing to do with the smart cities um, project. Can you can you kind of uh, go into that? And yeah. So in the city's initial response, the, the same response that incorrectly told us there was a. Uh, state contract with Cambium. But in that initial response, you know, in bold, they were, you know, the city was was trying to be very clear and that this uh, why, this $3 million Wi-Fi contract is a completely separate project from the larger smart cities project that has now been abandoned. Um, now, obviously, I mean, you know, th- there's a clear incentive for the city to try and differentiate these two projects. One of them is now very controversial, has been abandoned, and is the subject of potentially two investigations. So it's not surprising that they're trying to create distance between the two projects. But as Charles said, until this point, until we started asking questions about this Cambium contract, these two projects have been pitched as closely related. In fact, in in, in one instance, the the city pitched it without any division between the two projects whatsoever. And, and, you know, the example is, you know, when the city council started to ask more questions about this, um, when when they they submitted their first subpoena, um, you know, and and really started to ramp up this investigation, the city basically tried to throw the council a bone and and sent them this four-page letter that Jonathan Rhodes wrote that kind of outlined the status of the of the smart cities project what was happening and, and what was kind of planned and and it kind of lays out four points of of deliverables for the project that the city could expect within you know this first year of the project the first thing listed on that in that letter is a is the three million dollar contract to put in wi-fi equipment at 10 nord centers so exactly what this cambium frontera contract is so until this point the city itself has pitched this as a part of the broader smart cities project. Mm. Um, There has been no differentiation. So for the city to now say, no, 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 this is completely different. This has nothing to do with that smart city stuff. All those connections that you're seeing, don't don't worry about those. It's a little questionable. Um, The last thing I'll say is that I, I genuinely don't know why the city would split these up into two public bid processes that that still is a bit of a mystery to me you know again uh it seems from everything i've seen that this was uh you know at at a central part of these smart cities negotiations and vision so i'm not sure why there are two uh public bid processes but uh i'm sure we'll you know find out more so the the smart cities deal broadly was was pitched as a way to kind of reduce the digital divide and and you've pointed out the ways in which maybe it wasn't actually going to do that but is this cambium contract the with the 10 nord centers are they one are they saying that that the purpose is the same there that that the goal is to provide more access for people who don't have it by putting them in these places and then two did these nord centers not have internet yeah, so, those are good questions. It's it's yeah. it, it's being pitched along the same lines. On the on the like you said, you know, both projects have been pitched as a way to reduce the city's digital divide to get internet access to those who don't currently have it. Um, you know, I, I think that in in this situation, you know, the idea here, you know, again, is to get um, 
Wi-Fi access in these Nord centers and the surrounding areas. You know, I don't know exactly what the geographic area around the Nord centers would be, how far away you could get it, but that would be the point of it, which, you know, to a certain extent would help people get on the internet. Like you're saying, a lot of these Nord centers already have internet access and their internet access is significantly cheaper um, than kind of what's being pitched in this Cambium project. <laughs> so I think the differentiation here is that unlike just buying a, a subscription from an existing service like Cox or AT&T. The reason why this is so expensive is that it's building, the city would be building its own internet infrastructure from scratch. Um, and, and let me, let me add, you, you've given them, I mean, you've, you've given them multiple opportunities mm -hmm. to say something like, this is going to be 10 times better than what we already have at Nord Centers. Like this is going to, this is, this is, this is going to be the ultimate internet experience. But um, we've never heard that. Like well, right. we, we, they've right. never, they've never said like, yes, we already have Wi-Fi, but this is going to be way better Wi-Fi. I mean, at least that would, that would be something. Totally. I think the way, the, the only way, so my understanding of why we're starting with these 10 Nord centers, you know, from the start, the city has said that the goal is not just internet access, it's in-home internet access specifically, um, which is an important point, right? Because that's where you do your homework. That's where you apply for jobs. You don't have to worry about whether the library is going to be open or whether it's raining or whether the bus is running. So that has been the goal. And my understanding of why we were going to start with these Nord centers is that the technology that we're talking about, this kind of, you'll, you'll hear it referred to as mesh Wi-Fi, it, it's a fairly new type of technology in terms of, you know, you know, broad use. And so my understanding was that this was going to be a way for us to test the technology, for us to make sure that it worked, um, to make sure there weren't bugs, to make sure that the, the connections were fast. And then from there, um, once we tested it, it would, it would, you know, then we would turn to the larger smart cities project, which would aim to have this same type of Wi-Fi equipment, but blanketed everywhere throughout the entire city. I, we, we've only been told three out of the 10 um, Nord facilities where the, these, you know, pieces of technology would go. Um, and, you know, I had called all three of those facilities and all of them do currently have, you know, Wi-Fi access for, for residents that walk in. So, you know, like Nick is saying, this doesn't exactly expand Internet access and it certainly doesn't expand in-home uh, Internet access, which is the city's, you know, main stated goal. Um, you know, again, my understanding here was that this was kind of got going to be kind of the lead in to a much broader Internet plan. But now that the larger smart cities plan has been shelved, I'm not really sure what this does on its own or why the three million dollar upfront investment, the three hundred thousand dollar annual maintenance would, would be worth it. That That is not entirely clear. Mm. OK, well, thanks for doing the hard work of peeling the onion. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens, I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Lens Editor, Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. The strength of the lens lies in the highly qualified editorial and research staff, as well as a collaborative network of affiliated organizations. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you.
Nick, two years ago, a 2016 law called Raise the Age Act took full effect. Under that law, 17-year-olds accused of crimes would no longer automatically go into the adult court system. The legislature is now moving on a new bill on this cohort. And while it doesn't repeal Raise the Age, it would revert to treating them as adults. What is the proposal? So the proposal as it currently stands would mandate that 17-year-olds that are arrested for certain crimes, crimes of violence, um, crimes which they could potentially be charged as adults um, by the d- district attorney, that they would be automatically taken to an adult jail after they're arrested. Um, so currently, in places where there's a juvenile detention facility, those kids are, are generally take they're, they're assumed to be in the juvenile justice system and they're taken to a juvenile detention facility. In some places where they don't have one, there's a very limited amount of time where they can be taken to an adult jail and held prior to being uh, transferred to an appropriate juvenile facility once those arrangements are made. But this bill would basically say, no, those, those kids are going to an adult jail um, and then until a judge makes a determination that, that they'll be transferred back to a juvenile facility, then they, they will uh, stay there. Okay. Why, why now? What are they responding to? What's going on? Well, you know, I think there's a few different things going on. The original bill as it was brought was a full repeal of Raise the Age. So it would have put 17-year-olds back in the adult um, criminal justice system and the sponsor of the bill, Senator Kathy, said that he was approached by both the attorney general, uh, Jeff Landry, and a, a few district attorneys around the state saying, you know, we really need to get a handle on these 17-year-olds committing violent crimes, these really bad 17-year-olds. And they, you know, argued that the way to do that was to automatically put them into the adult uh, criminal legal system. There was a lot of pushback, obviously, when Raise the Age was uh you know, passed back in 2016. It was really celebrated. It put Louisiana in line with the vast majority of other states where they handle 17-year-olds generally as in the juvenile justice system. And just to be clear, individual district attorney can decide to charge 17-year-olds in the adult court system, as we've seen across the state. And we've even seen here in New Orleans, despite DA Jason Williams running on a campaign promise of not doing that. He has, in, in some instances, in, in very serious, you know, murder right. charges, decided to, to go ahead and move, move kids into the adult system. Yeah. So, but that, the, the full repeal, while it passed out of the, the Senate committee, it, on the Senate floor, it was, the bill was changed pretty significantly. And I think if you look at, at the change now, what we're seeing is, is no real change in how these charging decisions are made, only where juveniles are being held after arrest. And I think that one of the reasons is we see in some of these parishes without juvenile detention facilities that kids are having to be transferred out of parish far away. That often is associated with, with costs to the, to the municipalities. Um, and I think one of the DAs, Tony Clayton, um, in the 18th JDC, uh, he, he kind of expressed frustration that, that these costs were piling up. Mm. Um, so I think that there is, there is an element that's not really what is being explicitly argued. The argument more is, is around whether or not these 17-year-olds should be treated as adults. But if you look at the bill as it stands now, 
it doesn't really address that. Um, it really addresses where they're being held. And I think that there's, there's good reason to believe that that has to do with, you know, the kind of practicality and the costs around sending kids to juvenile detention centers in other places, as opposed to just being able to hold them in the, in the local jail. Okay. I think your cost explanation makes a lot of sense. And I think if I'm I'm remembering correctly, Tony Clayton actually did talk about that at a hearing on this bill in its earlier form uh, last month. But, um, but yeah, the, the, the primary uh, explanation that is being given in the Capitol from what I understand and from what I've read is this perceived spike in juvenile violent crime. Um, and, you know, there has there has been a spike in violent crime in general across the country. Um, they actually had um, Jeff Asher, who I think many of our listeners will know. Um, he's a, a, a data analyst who specializes in crime data. Um, he came to the uh, to the Capitol last month during a hearing and uh, he said, look, um, Crime's gone gone up everywhere across the country since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, It's gone up in states that have um, instituted new reforms like like raise the age and similar reforms. And it's gone up in states that haven't. Um, And furthermore, he found that juveniles actually when it comes to murder, which is, you know, which is the, the thing that people are not. It's not the thing that the only thing that people are concerned about, but it is it is a major, major thing people are concerned about when it comes to murders. This the share of of murders committed or where there is a a juvenile suspect or a juvenile uh, uh, who's been convicted have have actually went down uh, between 2018 and 2020 when crime started to spike. I know they're talking about costs here as being one of the reasons to move kids, but there's also other requirements, right? Like you have to have sight and sound separation for 17 year olds from adults. Is that something that our local prisons can do and can handle if they're going to be keeping 17 year olds? Well, it depends who you ask. I think advocates for, you know, keeping kids in, in juvenile facilities would say that our, our jails are, are not good at that. And that even, you know, under the best circumstances, kids are, are still more likely to engage in self-harm, more likely to be preyed upon, uh, you know, more likely to be physically or sexually assaulted in these adult facilities. You know, the other thing is that there's a federal law that requires a kid who is being charged in the juvenile justice system to be held in a juvenile detention facility. They legally under federal law cannot be held in an adult facility, even if there are sight and sound barriers. So this bill would have kids who have not been yet charged as adults being taken to adult jails, which would appear to be in violation of federal law. Right. There are, as I said, kids can be held in adult jails for very brief periods of time in, in a metropolitan area at six hours in a rural area, I believe it's 48 hours. So there are some time restrictions, but you know, a district attorney has 30 days to decide whether or not to charge a, a kid as an adult. And if they're held in an adult jail past the six hour, you know, past the six hours or past the 48 hours, and they haven't yet been charged as an adult, then they would be in violation of, of federal law. This law also provides funding to the state. So they get about $700,000 a year uh, through this law. If they're in violation, that funding gets cut pretty significantly. Um, so, you know, in addition to sort of the arguments around why kids shouldn't, shouldn't be held in adult jails in general, there's also this kind of, 
you know, economic argument from from the other side that, you know, we're going to lose a ton of federal funding if if we're in violation. All right. What is Sheriff Hudson saying about this? Uh, she is opposed. Um, so in, in New Orleans, currently, there are, despite the DA charging several kids as an adult, they're still being held in, in the juvenile detention center here. They're not being held in the adult jail. Basically, uniformly at this point, all city officials are, are vocally opposed to holding youth in adult jails. That's not always been the case. Um, the Cantrell administration requested a few years ago that, that uh, after an incident at the Juvenile Justice Center, uh, Intervent- JJSC, yeah, Juvenile Justice Intervention Center, that, that a few kids be moved to the adult jail where they felt there was you know, higher security. Um, but since then, they've indicated that they're no longer interested in doing that, that JJIC has sort of expanded so that they're better able to, to hold these kids. So, so really, no one in the system wants kids in, in the New Orleans adult jail. But, you know, this, this law would, if, if they followed it, would, would sort of force them to with 17-year-olds. Well, let me ask you that. Is this naive to assume that if locally we wanted to continue to go down that path that we have gone down, which is to not hold juveniles in adult facilities in direct contravention of, of state policy, couldn't they just continue to do so and risk, I guess, I don't know, what punishment? Would they levy fines or, you know, what would they do if if New Orleans just said, mm, no, we're just going to keep doing what what we want to do. Yeah, that's you know, a good question. It is a good question. I don't I don't really have the answer, and I I think, especially if given given sort of the federal law, I think it would be unlikely that there would be sort of any swift enforcement action against city officials for not taking a seventeen year old to the adult jail. You know, I think that really when you when you look at it this this law as opposed to you know necessarily wanting to force these municipalities to to do this it, it's giving kind of cover for for the the jurisdictions that would like to do it but but can't currently um mm. under the state law okay thanks nick thank you marta last week the orleans parish school board heard a new report on enrollment at city schools what did that report have to say Yes, yeah, so last week, the Orleans Parish School Board members heard a report from New Schools for New Orleans, which is a, a nonprofit group in the city that does education work, which, you know, only reaffirmed what we kind of already knew, but went a little further in depth into the fact that we are facing, you know, pretty big enrollment declines in the city, which is not unique to the district. It's not unique to the state. Um, it's happening across the country. But what that does mean for our city is that it's really time to look at how how kids are enrolled in schools and, you know, if we're operating schools that are have 10% of their seats open, that comes at a pretty big financial cost. Right. And so this is part of that right sizing process. Will you remind everybody what that is? Yep. So in um, December, you know, kind of at the beginning of this um, series of NSNO reports, uh, they put together a pretty good explainer, noting that we are down about, we have about, you know, 3,000 unfilled seats in the district of about uh, 44,000 students. And, you know, some schools are seeing anywhere from, you know, 5% vacancy to up to 15% vacancy. And if you're, if you're facing those challenges, you're trying to operate a school where you have fixed costs, like 
teachers and, you know, you got to run the building and you have to have a kitchen and student funding based on a per pupil basis. As you have fewer and fewer students in a building, it's harder to kind of keep that full robust programming that you'd, you'd like to have as a school. Right. And apart from the pandemic related decline, there's there's a larger demographic trend here with the, with the migration of people around the country, right? Exactly. And, I, you know, I think kind of what happened here is we were seeing growth in kindergarten and first grade, um, you know, in 2014, 15, 16. And, you know, I think the district kind of made some assumptions off the you know demographics we were seeing then. And now where we are is we have 80 schools and many with unfilled seats. And, um, you know, this ripple effect that we're now seeing of lower kindergarten enrollment is going to continue and that's eventually going to reach our high schools and we're going to have more open seats. So what that means is it's time to start considering either consolidating or closing schools. Um, and actually this year we are going to have four schools close. None of them were super contentious. Basically two schools did not get their contracts renewed and then two other schools kind of volunteered to close. But I think, you know, in the future that this could become more contentious for sure. Cause we were in a you know, all charter district where charters are supposed to be autonomous and allowed to operate as they as they please within the what's allowed in their contract. And this is a lot for the new superintendent probably to take on right when she starts. Yes, certainly. Um, it's, it is definitely a tall task. Um, and I think what's really in question now is, you know, we've had these NSNO reports, but that's from an outside agency. What we really need to see is what what is the district's plan for this? What is the district going to do with this information? And that's certainly something I think that we could see was frustrating board members last week. You know, they're questioning NSNO. Did you disaggregate this this data by by race, by income, by zip code? And you know, the NSNO employee was like, you know, we just we don't have access to that data. That's data that your district has access to. Hmm. Marta, if I'm wrong, correct me here, but the new superintendent, she did have some experience with a similar situation in, in Selma, Alabama, where she comes from, right? She did, yep. In her interview, she talked about um, they had, when she came into Selma, I can't remember what year it was, but there had uh, been a recommendation made a few years prior to her beginning there that um, I believe three or four schools needed to close in the district. And she did end up making those closures. Um, certainly what's different about that, though, is Selma City is more of a traditional school district. Superintendent has very broad ability to close traditional schools that are under direct leadership. And when you get into an all-charter city, it's a little more complicated. Yeah, they're under contract. For, yep. for, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and on top of that, it's maybe it isn't. I don't know. But it seems to me maybe a little less complicated when you're dealing with a smaller district. I mean, you're dealing with three or four schools. And that was that was a that was a huge deal um, here. You know, we're. The, the school district is routinely closing down three or four schools and, and, you know, bringing in new contracts every year. Right. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to see what that's like. I mean, and the district has very been very upfront and said, you know, people can apply for charters this year. They can apply for charters next year, but do not expect to open. Hmm. And so what what happens next? So I, I think, like we said, you know, the district is going to have to start doing some of this work. I don't know if they are in part holding off a little bit to wait for her to arrive. Right. Um, I know she's doing some work in the city, but it's, you know, pretty limited um, before her actual tenure begins. But I do think it's it's time for more internal information. It's time for more district recommendations and a little more guidance on what would, would happen in that vein, because NSNO uh, doesn't and frankly, you know, shouldn't be guiding this entire process. That should be a, a district and a board decision. Right. All right. Before I let you go, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. What are the COVID numbers like right now in the city? Um, in the city, they have 
they had been going up slightly. Um, we had like a 7% positivity rate, I believe. But, and then, and of course, we, we had gone up to that um, CDC medium level of uh, community concern. And we're still at that. Oh, wait, our positive test rate went up, sorry, to 9.6 this week. So that's a, that's a jump. Okay. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. All right, everybody, be well. Thank you. Thank you. See you later. Bye-bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.